Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 136. Wow. All right, just ahead. We're going to hear how Lennar is handling the global supply chain, all those problems, and yet the worst might be over. Plus, Rite Aid envisions a world where COVID never ends. You've got to hear it from the CEO of Rite Aid. And how the pandemic has put introduction of new foods on hold for everyone, except for natural food company Haynes Celestial. We'll talk to the Haynes Celestial CEO, Mark Schiller, in just a little bit. But first... It's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And regardless of the platform upon which you listen to The Drill Down, it's so much easier to hear the show if you hit the subscribe button. That way you'll be alerted to every single new show. Of course, you can always go back and listen to our catalog, but check out the latest show every week by hitting the subscribe button. And the drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust sells clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more. Build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Did you see, Isaac, the Braintrust raised $100 million to build out their platform they announced it in the last week. Huge uh, vote of confidence that. for that company. So. Yeah, a lot of people are using Braintrust to build out those uh, those tech teams. Freelancers, on call, been a moment's notice, pretty cool stuff. Freelance world. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks and the move. Joining me to help me do that, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, almost. Almost. <laughs> All above. Although, if you're listening to this show in April of 2022... Or yeah. whenever. You're already in the new year. Tell me what happened. Hey, the, pan the if they're listening in April 2022, the pandemic's over. Everyone's happy. Unemployment Peace and love, is harmony down. on earth. Uh, supply chain problems are resolved. The, I the polar ice caps have refrozen. All, all uh, kinds of wonderful things have happened. They fixed the Sex and the City reruns. <laughs> Samantha came back for the reboot. Oh I my gosh. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah. You made a no. Sex in the City reference and you don't even know what Samantha means. <laughs> All right. That was for you. Let's move on. You're, Corey, you're, what? You know you are? What? You know you are? You're what? welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? I want to take a look at Lennar. Lennar. Lennar trades under L-E-N and shares have risen 42% in a year. All right, so people look at Lennar and they say, what's up with housing? Okay, so first of all, let's, let's understand where Lennar sits in the world of housing context, mm -hmm. right? The three right. largest developers of housing in the U.S., D.R. Horton, Lennar, and Pulte Group. 
And you can measure by how many homes they build or the average uh, revenues they get. It still kind of stacks up the same that that DR Horton's bigger, Lennar is slightly smaller in terms of uh, the number of homes they build and the revenues that they garner. Pulte is significantly smaller. So Lennar tells us a lot about housing. But Lennar also tells us a lot about a lot of things, as so many companies do, not least of which the supply chain. But let's back up. So our uh, overall in the economy, we've got new home sales numbers this week. Uh, they were up big time, 12% in November. That was for the prior month. But the previous month, October, they revised those numbers. Initially, they'd said they were up 0.4%. I was saying, actually, they were down 8%. So, you know, the numbers are in flux, but November was super strong. Median home price up 19% to $417,000 in America. But uh, also interesting from Lennar's perspective. So Lennar is a company that's really um, fixed a lot of their uh, issues uh, over the last few years, paying down debt, buying back shares, seeing rising housing prices, getting in there and taking some shots and buying land and having that work out. And they've seen that show up in revenue growth, which has grown. You know, if you look back the last few years, saw revenue growth grow 2%. And then the next year was 9%. The next year was 13%. Now the most recent year, 21% revenue growth. But the supply chain problems, well, they've worked through those. Even though the problems keep shifting, Stuart Miller, the CEO, described them as whack-a-mole. We recognize that it's a bit of, as John said, whack-a-mole out there. Uh, one day it's garage doors, another day it's windows or paint. Um, and that that kind of configuration uh, is, at least in our world, starting to feel like we're stabilizing it. Um, I noted our purchasing team and the work that they have done um, uh, around our builder of choice programs or everything's included programs working to really stabilize that purchasing side and the and logistics side of our business. Um, and as we go forward, I think you're going to see that parity, that pairing of production cycle stabilizing and high demand in the marketplace start to move things uh, towards what I think is going to be more of an upside in 2022. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see if it plays out that way. So I thought the key point in what Stuart Miller had to say there was they are seeing them kind of stabilizing. Stabilization between the purchasing side and logistics side. Isaac, I think that's super positive because these guys buy from all kinds of places and all kinds of stuff and dealing with a pretty complex supply chain. If they're seeing some stabilization, no, you, you, you might not, you're going to hear the word stabilization before you hear the word improvement, um, but it's not getting worse. At least it sounds like not so much at Lennar. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Rite Aid. Rite Aid. Rite Aid trades under RAD and shares have fallen 24% over the past 12 months. What's going on there? Well, an interesting business, one that's on probably all of our minds. Um, COVID uh, obviously is having this massive surge right now uh, with Omicron. It's hitting the East Coast particularly bad. It's hitting um, Republican counties and voting districts particularly bad. It's pretty, hitting people without vaccines and boosters particularly right. bad. Right. Um, depending on how you want to look at uh, how you want to break it down. But um, uh, it's, yeah, I got, I had a bunch of COVID symptoms this week. I was absolutely, I had uh, possible exposure this week. I'm like, all right, this is it. I got and? COVID. I tested negative. Great. Good. I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was, it was my, my biggest fear about it recently. Uh, right. I know that I'm not alone in these issues. Um, right. But what we've been seeing uh, with COVID has changed the business for a lot of uh, all the companies we talk about. 
but mm-hmm. Rite Aid in particular. So the Rite Aid call was just absolutely fascinating. The CEO Hayward Donegan, uh, uh, just uh, so many interesting initiatives there. I mean, this 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 conference call for the most recent quarter had everything: healthcare, supply chain, bricks and mortar versus uh, online, and yes, COVID. Now, the the biggest thing that's happened in the pharmacy business um, in the last you know since March 2020 has been COVID, yes, but the decline in acute um, prescriptions has really hit CVS. Uh, what uh, is an acute letters. prescription? What does that mean? Great question. So there's there are acute prescriptions or prescriptions for acute issues as opposed to um, maintenance uh, prescriptions. So a maintenance prescription might be something like Lipitor, right? You, okay. Your doctor says you got high cholesterol, you're taking Lipitor, you're going right. to take it forever, you got to go to the doctor and get it constantly, right? A Cialis, right? Something that... Viagra, people, people get and take and take and take for, for lengthy periods of time. Um, and so the profit margins on those those drugs that people are on, um, uh, there's a long list of them um, that might get a lot of attention, but they're actually not huge profit margins for the, the pharmacies of the world. Acute, however, is the uh, a lot of the prescription activity um, and it's much more profitable. Those are for problems from uh, surgery consultations or short-term issues that have just sprung up. Those are higher margin than maintenance prescriptions. Got it. But even more profitable are COVID vaccines and COVID testing. Mm -hmm. So the pharmacies, which have been complaining about the fact that they haven't had the business of acute because people haven't been going for elective surgeries and have been avoiding doctor's offices uh, during uh, the the pandemic, uh, those problems... uh, uh, were bad for the pharmacy, but they didn't really talk too much about how profitable the COVID vaccines were, particularly when the government was underwriting these these vaccines. Well, now people are starting to go back to the doctor and they're starting to do elective procedures. And so with COVID rearing back, you wonder, well, is that going to slow down or mm-hmm. are they going to go in tandem? And what we heard is that, um, that Rite Aid is saying, actually, we could have COVID for a long, long time. We might have COVID forever. We might get COVID shots every year and boosters every year for the rest of our lives. Oh, yeah. Like the flu shot. Right, right. But what we're seeing is people are now going back to the doctor and it's not a complete shutdown. And people are going for elective surgeries and it's not a complete shutdown. Even what they're seeing in New York City this week, Rite Aid is saying, People are still going to the doctor, but they're also wanting a booster shot and they're getting tested like crazy. Here is CEO Hayward Donegan. We were in the market that got shut down in the early days of COVID. And that's when we saw the significant hoarding of uh, front end. And that's when we um, start, saw the, the drop to zero on acute. And it's also when we started very intensely and on the forefront of most of the country doing vaccines and testing. And what we're seeing right now in New York City is all of the above. People are still going to the doctors and they're now running to get booster shots and they are getting tested like crazy. So there is, there, there continues to be a scenario where this really does go on for quite a long period of time. And, and the, the thing that we are encouraged about is that we don't think that people will stop going to the doctor again or stop going to school again, at least on a regular basis, especially for the younger kids who really are the super spreaders of cough, cold, and flu. So I'm not sure if she's saying that younger kids, the super spreaders of cough, flu, and, and, and the cold, are good for her business or not. It sounds like she is. 
But uh, uh, fundamentally, I think what is interesting is that this business is going to look very different, I think, in two or three years with a continuation of COVID, you know, for many years, COVID vaccines and boosters for many years, um, a reacceleration of acute care and a movement for the store. They, they talked about closing stores, a movement towards more online, more kind of holistic deliveries, whether it's same day delivery, uh, ongoing mail delivery and going in to see the pharmacist. Uh, right, it's gonna look real different in the years ahead. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at paychecks. Paychecks. I've never heard of this company actually. P A Y X. Really? Yeah. They trade under P A Y X and shares have gained 42% in a year. So tell me about paychecks. So paychecks is one of the largest payroll processors in the country. Okay. Um, but they tend to deal more with mid market companies that are really just kind of dealing with putting their payrolls online, dealing with complicated payroll issues, mm-hmm. dealing with all the things that that, uh, that entails. It's a company based in Rochester, New York, place that I grew up where people talk funny. I can say that because you're from, from there. there. And I can say that because you're about to hear from the CEO, Martin Mucci, who is doing a terrific job uh, and that business um, is growing real fast. Um, but uh, they announced a quarter, like I said, that was just looking really solid for this company. Um, they have seen uh, revenues, uh, top line increase uh, in the last uh, 12 months. By six percent, pretty nice. Better yet, they've seen gross profits improve by about uh, by about eight percent, um, and seeing a lot of uh, real changes in the midst of 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 that improvement in profit margin and the improvement um, in revenues. They've spent a lot of money getting a lot more digital. So what they're they're seeing is is the ability to serve customers with fewer employees, and uh, ironically, a company that provides paychecks trying to do it with fewer people, but more digital, more digital offerings, and offering to companies that have never seen anything like this in the mid market. Interestingly, though, it's a great way to look at what's happening in the small, medium-sized business world in terms of the ability to hire, in terms of what's happening with inflation. And for these guys, inflation is good. Why, Isaac, you might ask? Why? Well, on some level, the biggest place we're seeing inflation outside of used cars is wage inflation. And everybody getting paid a little bit more money, sure, that gets spread around the economy. But isn't that a good thing if people can pay a little bit more, a few percentage, single-digit percentage points more for a year or two? Not I would so think bad. so, yeah. So then uh, Paychex actually offers us some more insight, kind of looking at what kind of companies we're talking about. Is it leisure and hospitality? Is it restaurant workers? And what does it mean? What's really interesting is these guys are seeing at the lowest level, part-time pay per hour has risen significantly. And that's where we're seeing inflation and maybe, uh, you know, from an employer standpoint, maybe that's what they'd call suffering. But from an employee standpoint, not too much. Listen to my uh, fellow Rochesterian. If you think I talk funny, I listen to this really, this really good CEO with a nice uh, regional accent, those things we're losing in America, Martin Mucci uh, of Paychex. Yeah, obviously from our small business index, and that really looks at the, uh, the clients of ours that are under 50 employees, you know, we're seeing continued growth, job growth, uh, you know, for six months in a row now. So the job growth is good. Now we're still, as you know, you know, what, around a 61% participation rate, I think, which is down a couple percentage points from pre-pandemic. We're still short around 4 million jobs from pre-pandemic. A million and a half of those are leisure and hospitality. So I would say the ones that are still struggling the most are the restaurants. And you probably know everyone's kind of sees that anecdotally from 
cut back hours or even, you know, closed a few more days uh, than they normally would. I think that's where still the biggest struggle has been. Uh, and it's a combination of, you know, the pay, which has gone up dramatically. You know, we're seeing average part-time uh, pay for our client base, part-time uh, pay per hour is $19.62 last month. It's an amazing thing when you think two years ago, everybody was arguing about getting to 15. So it is more costly. The supplies are more costly as well. But I think from an employment perspective, uh, that's probably the one that's suffering the most. Now, Corey, that wasn't so bad. That no, accent, what is that that accent wasn't so bad. No, I just, I'm particularly sensitive because I, I learned to say things like Rochester's not Rochester, which is what they uh, say where I'm from. Right. right. Things you're like so, that. You're so sensitive to all that stuff. I'm a very sensitive you, guy. You've got to let it go. I, I grew up a lot of, around a lot of weird accents as well in Missouri. Well, and I have, yeah, I have to say that the decline of regional accents in America is such a great loss. Is it? Yeah. It was charming. The different parts of the country sound like different parts of the country. Yeah. I guess that's one way to look at it. It's the only place we don't have polarization. We've all lost our accents. In any case, interesting conversation coming up with the CEO of Haynes Celestial, natural yeah. food maker uh, that makes a lot of stuff on our grocery store shelves. They approached COVID very differently than their competitors, introducing new products in ways our competitors couldn't, but dealing with, you know, sold out shelves. And are we returning to that? We're going to find out when we talk to CEO Mark Schiller right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're glad to have you. We're also glad to have the CEO, Haynes Celestial. Uh, Mark Schiller joining us right now. Mark is not joining us from some celestial place, or maybe you are. As far as our listeners know, you're you're in a cloud watching them all buy tea. Absolutely. As long as they're buying tea, I'm always in a cloud. How big is tea in your business? The, the you know Celestial Seasonings is is the brand that I know the best of all of your brands, of which yeah. there are many. Yeah, uh, it's one of the bigger brands for sure. We have about thirty seven brands, so it's uh, it's a lot of businesses. But that is certainly one of the cornerstone and. Uh, brands and certainly well known uh, and very well distributed, so it's a terrific business. Now, what what is the history of the well, well? I don't know if I should start with the history or just start with the business. What is the business? So we are a health food company. Uh, we've been in health and wellness for almost thirty years. We had a founder who had the foresight to see that health and wellness was going to really be a trend and not a fad. Uh, back you know twenty five years ago, when people that ate healthy were referred to as tree huggers or other non-flattering names. He, he said, this is where the world is going and I want to get in. And so he started acquiring companies. He bought 55 brands over 25 years and um, we've done nothing but health and wellness for a very long time. And so now we're uh, really pivoting toward being a high growth company and um, building on these terrific brands that he's acquired over the years. And doing about 2 billion in, in revenues of 1.9 billion last year or trailing 12 months at least. Yes. Um, uh, it's it's such an interesting business. So mostly distributed in supermarkets or where's most of your distribution? Yeah. So first of all, half the company is in Europe and half of it is in North America. So we're, right. we're a split between the two. Um, Based you know, on Long you, Island. Yes. Um, but if you think historically, if you wanted to buy health food, you either had to go to Whole Foods in the natural channel or you had to get it online because 
mainstream grocers really didn't carry healthy food until much, much later. So we are very well developed uh, on places like Amazon and other e-commerce retailers and very well developed in the natural channel with places like Sprouts and uh, Whole Foods. And it's only been in the last 10 years that that mainstream grocers have said, this is a business we have to be in. And so uh, we've made great progress over that 10 years, but we still have a lot of white space left for us to go conquer in the, the more mainstream grocery channels. Well, um, the, the supermarket business uh, is one that's fascinated me from my youth because my father worked in the food industry. Um, so I, I just always thought it was so weird and interesting um, in, a, in a hundred ways. But I don't think the supermarket business, the market business in the United States, at least, which I know, uh, has ever had a year like the last two uh, with yeah. COVID. And so, I, you know, we had this situation, um, you know, in March of 2020, April 2020, when shelves were were bare. And that went on for months and months. I mean, people are talking about supply chain problems now. I don't know if they remember what things were like 18 months ago or so or, or more. Um, and I wonder how, um, looking back on that period of COVID, that sort of first year of people be working from home, people being shut in or quarantined or whatever, how did that affect your business? So it, it obviously affected everyone in, in many ways. But for, for our industry specifically, first and foremost was how do you keep your employees safe? Uh, when this virus is spreading rapidly and, and do you have um, protocols and processes to identify people who are sick and quarantine them and contact trace and all of that. But from a, from a, a business standpoint in terms of sales, initially when everybody um, was quarantining at home, a lot of the out-of-home food occasions came into the house. Kids weren't in school, so they were eating lunch at home. Right. Office workers were eating lunch at home. People weren't traveling. Um, and, and restaurants were, were largely closed at the beginning. So there was a huge surge in demand uh, at the beginning. And the companies that were able to service the business well really distinguished themselves. And I'm, I'm proud of how we did. And, and part of it was good planning, but part of it was because we have half our company in Europe, where remember Italy and Spain and the lockdowns that were happening there before it happened here, we kind of saw it coming before others did. And so we were very well prepared in terms of finding backup sources of supply and things that we would need to make sure that we would continue to service the business well. Well, let me, and let me offer some context. So in your last annual report, uh, which is end of June, you'd say you've got 3,100 employees, to be specific, 3,087, uh, but 3,100 employees, 45% of them in the U.S., which is to say the rest were outside of North America. And it, it sounds like about a quarter of your employees, maybe as much as 30%, um, who are outside of the U.S. are in manufacturing. That's a whole different challenge uh, when it comes to COVID protocols and the expenses regarding that. Are your processes for making the foods that you make and the teas and, and, the, and the other foods that you make um, different and permanently changed? So the, the way we make food hasn't changed. We're, we're very well regulated as an industry. And so there are safety protocols. And, and um, Yeah, the meat industry would say the same thing. But I would argue <laughs> that, that, that that doesn't really tell us the story of what working conditions are like in the meat industry, which have changed, maybe hopefully yeah. permanently. It, it, the the kinds of food that we make are are uh, very sanitary and have very um, clear protocols and very significant testing to make sure that everything that comes in and goes out is meeting very strict uh, federal standards. But what what has changed is um, how the employees work. How do we keep them physically separated? How do who has to wear masks? How are we getting them tested? Um, how are we cleaning? So we have um, dramatically increased the amount of cleaning, everything from scrubbing doorknobs on the men's room 
uh, to wiping down the, you know, the, the cafeteria, those kinds of things we didn't have to think about before. So there's, there's a lot more emphasis on um, human safety as opposed to food safety, which right. has always been there. So let's get to the revenue side then. So what happened with your sales um, during that time? How did you, uh, what was the, you know, what are the numbers and how do they change? And then and what do we have, what happens after? Yeah, so for the first, I'll call it nine months of the pandemic, we saw about a 15% increase in our consumption and our sales. And then as people started leaving their homes, really last spring, um, yeah, uh, around the March timeframe, a lot of those eating occasions migrated back out of the home. And so we got, we as an industry and we as a company got a lot of new triers into our brands during this period of time when people were cocooning. And those that did the best figured out how to generate that trial into more permanent customers. And we've done a very good job of retaining those customers, even as they were leaving the home, such that our, our consumption continues to be elevated. And quite frankly, it's accelerating now at a very rapid pace, even though, you know, we're all out and about back in, in uh, a more normalized kind of living environment than we were. Um, you say accelerating at a pace, but revenues are down, you know, each of the last three quarters on a year over year basis. Um, you in, in your 10K, you list is the I, I suspect the reason is the first thing you put in your 10K about your priorities, which is, uh, uh, you know, when you look at your, your uh, simplify your portfolio, that usually doesn't mean adding new products. No. So in fact, we've sold 23 brands in the last right. two and a half years. So, so we are overlapping the sales of uh, businesses that were in the portfolio a year ago that aren't today. And, and the purpose of that was to really get to a cohesive um, set of brands that we thought had tremendous growth potential and, and strong consumer franchises. We just, it's hard to manage 55 brands in a company that's only 2 billion in sales. You can just imagine a many subscale businesses with a lot of complexity. Yeah. And so part of the last several years was really moving from more of an op, a holding company into an operating company and simplifying the business uh, considerably. So part of it was divesting brands. Part of it was also discontinuing individual items that either weren't profitable or weren't turning fast enough on the shelf to hold their space. And so we proactively gave up a lot of volume to stabilize the foundation. And now that it's stable, we're moving back into growth mode. Uh, because we've we've kind of consolidated to a set of brands that we think have tremendous potential. I'm 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 going back in time and thinking of my father's business, the company that he worked for years ago, and it it was an amalgamator of regional brands. That there were a lot of regional brands would be regional potato chips and regional pie filling and regional, you know, there was it was it was, it was you know there'd be and it was an interesting world that I, I think is hard to imagine right now. I wonder how much of this stuff is regional at all um, in 2021. Well, almost none of our products are ubiquitous. So, you know, I, I come from bigger CPG companies where, you know, you've got billion dollar brands that are in 98% of the stores. Our biggest brands like Celestial Seasonings Tea or, or Sensible Portions Veggie Straws are only in about Earth's 75% of the stores, Earth's Best. Yeah. And so we still have a lot of distribution upside given, again, our history of starting more in the natural channel. So you could say these are all regional brands because they're not... Uh, distributed in every store, but um, our biggest brands are are pretty much well-known household names and are are getting to that point where you'll find them in every corner of, of uh, where you shop. I, I've always been curious about the business of slotting fees and how groceries will charge the producer of products just to be on the shelf. Um, did that change at all during COVID? And um, just to have anything on the shelf is probably you're doing the grocer a favor, um, but I don't, I wonder how that changed and I wonder how that remains a, 
a challenge for you in your business? So at the beginning of the pandemic, when retailers were having trouble just keeping the shelves full, they weren't accepting new products. So what normally is a cadence where a certain number of categories get set every month, um, for about 18 months, there was no resets going on at all. They just wanted the core items, they wanted to keep the shelves full, uh, and they wanted to simplify their business by not taking on a bunch of innovation. Interesting. So what, what a great time for you to not launch new products because you couldn't have launched them anyway. Well, so what's interesting is we, we took the opposite approach. We launched them anyway. And okay. the reason we did that was because we wanted to show the retailers that we were growth oriented, that we had things that could bring new people into their store, that it was a way for them to differentiate themselves from the retailer down the street who maybe wasn't resetting his shelves. And so we didn't necessarily get massive distribution on these things, but what we did do is get enough data points of real consumption and incrementality and how fast they're moving to be able to go back to the rest of the retailers and say, you guys need to carry this. Look how fast it's turning. You're missing out on a great opportunity. And normally when you're selling new products, you're selling it based on concept data where we talked to right. consumers and they said they like this idea, which is not nearly as powerful as let me show you how many units per week per store I'm selling, which is much more you know empirical uh, data. And so it worked very well for us. The fact that we supplied the business well, the fact that we were innovating when others were pulling out their promotions and other things because they were having supply challenges really distinguished us. And now with the supply chain issues that are going on, retailers are calling us and saying, hey, somebody pulled out of that display program I have. Do you guys want to take it? Because they know we can supply it. So it's really um, us kind of going against the wave has served us very well during this pandemic. Um and what, what, what kind of money are we talking about? What percentage, is it percentage of revenues that they ask for slotting fees or how does that work? So it varies by retailer. Um, uh, the biggest guys certainly all want some kinds of, of fees. Um, in some cases, yeah. yeah, some kinds of just pay to play. If you want a spot on the shelf, this is what it costs. Incredible. In other cases, it's a negotiation. I'll give you this fee, but I want a certain number of items for it, or I want three end cap display programs so that we get some return on that investment because it's it's better for both of us if that money gets deployed against the consumer versus just being a profit center that goes into the retailer's pocket. Right. That's that's not as efficient for either one of us. But percentage of revenue, what, what does that tend to be? Uh, a new product to get ubiquitous distribution can cost upwards of a million dollars per item. Regardless of, so it's not a percentage of revenue, it's just, it's just flat fee, it's gonna cost you a million bucks to launch a consumer product in a grocery store. Yes. Doesn't and matter if it's a tea or a, 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 a cat food or whatever. It doesn't. But what I would say is during the pandemic, I think retailers have been much more flexible on some of those policies because, again, they're looking for partners who can keep them in stock, who can keep the shelves full, who are going to support the things that they take on. Uh, and we've demonstrated that we would do that. And so uh, we're getting a lot of wins at, at uh, lower rates than we might pay normally. Are you, have you tried products that don't work? Oh yeah, the, the success rate of innovation in the food industry is in general about 15%. In our case, we're running closer to 50, which is just massive versus the, the standard performance. But yeah, it's our job to, to launch things and um, not everything works, right? You may launch an idea that comes in four flavors and only two of them resonate with consumers at the end of the day, or you may find that it's more of a niche idea where you have um, small group of people that buy it, but buy it often, but it isn't enough to justify the right. shelf space at the end of the day. So there's a lot of turnover and innovation, but um, uh, we're certainly doing quite well there. Can you give me one that didn't work and then give me one that did? I'll let you end in the success story. 
<laughs> but I'm hoping the one that didn't work was something that will sound so dumb that it did, you know. Well, I, at the beginning, um, when I joined the company three years ago, innovation for us was here's the 37th flavor of sleepy time tea, you know, and if the retailer is already carrying 20 of these items, the, the, the 21st one that they take on is not going to be incremental. And so we were, we really weren't innovating. We were just doing line extensions, which weren't very incremental for us or the retailer. So at the beginning, I would say the failure rate was, was much higher. My first year, I think innovation was 1% of our sales. And last year it was almost 7% of our sales to give you a, a sense of our progress. But we've, we've launched many terrific products. So in tea, as an example, we've lost, we've launched, um, energy tea. So nobody thinks about um, putting down the cup of coffee and drinking a cup of tea instead, because it doesn't normally have as much caffeine as a cup of coffee. We said, there's a lot of people don't like coffee. It's bitter. They don't want to drink it in the afternoon. Why can't we give them tea with as much caffeine as a cup of coffee? That's done very well. Uh, we've launched um, a bunch of vegetable-based snacks that have done exceptionally well under the Sensible Portions brand. We've um, launched a bunch of children's snacks under Earth's Best and Sesame Street brands that have done very well. Um, so we, we've had a number of things that have uh, have performed terrifically and have been exceptionally incremental for the retailer, which gets them excited about bringing on more items. Well, my daughter uh, surprised me with a with a cup of your sleepy time ginger lemon tea last night. So. Um, uh, which I would not have had if she hadn't made it for me, but it was wonderful. And we I slept. It. So it's all it's on you. I appreciate that. Um, what an interesting company. I wanted to keep an eye on, certainly, as it goes through these big changes. Uh, Haynes Celestial CEO, uh, Mark Schiller. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right, coming Thank up next in the drill down, we're going to have one number that tells us a whole lot. The drill down bite, that one number that tells a whole lot about Haynes Celestial when the drill down continues. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, but do yourself a favor. Click the subscribe button to make sure that you get every single show on your phone or however you listen to the shows. That way, you won't miss a single interview on the show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Haynes Celestial. Isaac, I started off our interview and didn't get a straight answer from Mark Schiller, who I liked, uh, but uh, I don't think he was evading us. But the answer to the question, what percentage of revenues are T? For Haynes Celestial, well, the answer is only seven percent. That's up from that's twenty twenty one, up from five really? percent in twenty nineteen. Only seven percent. Snacks are sixteen percent. Uh huh. Personal care products like deodorants, body washes, sunscreens, lotions, oral and hair care, it's ten percent. Grocery sixty seven percent. So to think of this only as a tea business, even though historically that's kind of where their big business was, I think it's kind of wrong. It's seven percent tea. So funny. I I would have underwear, only thought tea. Underwear is 0%. Oh, Because it's okay. not so Hanes. They don't make Hanes underwear. It's Hanes Celestial. Oh. Hanes is not Celestial. It's just underwear. This whole time, I thought we were talking about the Hanes Same as Max guy. Welton or wow. uh, Mac Welton. I'm glad you cleared that up for me. Jockey. Calvin Klein. Anyway. Or you're just uh, naming underwear brands at this point. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, uh, yes, yes, I am. Different show, different, different show. show. Uh, 7% of their sales are tea. Huh. I enjoy their tea. I'm a big tea drinker. 
Uh, you know, when I was in Bloomberg, uh, I would uh, uh, Mallory Abelhausen, our wonderful um, uh, love Mallory, oh my director, gosh, yes. uh, would bring me lemon tea. She'd bring me Bigelow lemon tea. Oh yeah, it was I, 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 I heart lemon, but she'd cross out the word lemon and she'd change the word with every day's show. One day it'd be <laughs> I heart Corey's new pocket square or. I heart Thanksgiving weekend or oh. I heart Rihanna or whatever it was. I had a surprise. Didn't she know that sets. you had no capacity to give her a raise or anything? Maybe she just liked me. <laughs> Some people I've worked with over the years <laughs> didn't mind my company. Isaac Webster does not have to answer the questions whether he does or does not, but I appreciate his company. He's our executive producer, our editor extraordinaire is Ben Wilson. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.